1: about to watch an exciting interview with uh, one of the leading what I would call uh, the value investors of all time, uh, GMO, the firm of Jeremy Grantham. I'm going to talk to its chief asset allocator, Ben Inker, about what's changed as a result of the pandemic. We saw a historic decline in stocks and a record pace in February and March. and Since then, we've gone back to uh, record highs in most of the US indices. The question is, what does that mean, and how would you allocate towards stocks? What's changed permanently in the investment world and what hasn't? I think this will be a very good conversation from the perspective of someone who's a very fundamental analyst of the economy and of stocks. So, looking very much forward to speaking to him and hope that you enjoy the interview. Welcome to Real Vision. I'm Ed Harrison. I am talking to Ben Inker, who is the head of asset allocation at GMO. Ben, welcome to Real Vision. Thanks very much for having me, Ed. I'm excited to talk to you. And I was telling you uh, before, as we were just off camera, uh, what I was going to talk about, I think GMO is a company that I've been following for quite a while. It's an asset uh, manager, very famous because of Jeremy Grantham, and uh, you know he used to be the face of GMO, if you will. And now increasingly, you're the face of GMO. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about um, asset allocation at GMO and GMO overall. Maybe you can uh, walk the viewers through what GMO is as an uh, a firm, and what your team does within that.
2: So GMO is uh, an asset management firm. Uh, all we do is manage money for our clients, mostly institutional, but we've done uh, somewhat more into high net worth uh, in recent years. Um, <clears throat> we manage money across uh, stocks, bonds, and some liquid alternatives, hedge fund-type uh, strategies. And uh, as you say, you know Jeremy Grantham has been famous for a number of calls over the years, whether it was the Japan bubble or the, or the TMT internet event. That's kind of part and parcel of what we do as investors, but it's certainly not all of what we do as investors. We started out as uh, traditional uh, US equity uh, investors, uh, branched out into international and then emerging and emerging debt, um, over the years. And one of the things we've always looked out for is situations where market prices really didn't make any sense. Uh, And one thing we have always tried to do for our clients, in addition to managing money for them, uh, is try to give them good advice. Uh, And sometimes that advice has been uh, geez, you really might want to consider avoiding this asset class because its uh, its valuations have really come out of the line. Uh, and there have been a few occasions uh, where we've done that historically. So what I do in the asset allocation team, uh, I run a, a, a team of investors where we're first trying to put together uh, forecasts uh, based on the valuations of asset classes around the world. And then we put together portfolios for our clients uh, based on those forecasts, uh, where the various different investment teams at GMO manage the underlying stocks and bonds, and we're deciding how much should be in US stocks, how much should be in emerging markets value, how much should be in tips, um, uh, for example. Um, and you know, while a lot of our business is people hiring us for emerging debt or US high-quality stocks. Um, frankly, it's a little bit less exciting talking uh, to people about the fact that, hey, we've got these 40 stocks that we think are pretty interesting. You should buy them. It is kind of more newsworthy generally if we're saying, oh, my God, there's this asset class that is incredibly cheap or horribly expensive. Uh, So we tend to be in asset allocation more, I don't know, media interesting than other parts of the firm. But uh, the other parts of the firm uh, are certainly, uh, you know, doing very important work that, that we rely on, uh, and they have, uh, you know, their own very strong books of business as well.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads go to com now that's l i b s y n ads.com
1: well you're uh, that's why i'm talking to you you're you're very interesting because uh i was telling you we're thinking about uh, 6 months or actually really it's more like 9 months into a pandemic uh there are some differences one of which are potentially asset allocations of stocks and 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 bonds and, and various assets and uh, we're running a content campaign right now. The question is: is Has everything changed now that we're this far through uh, the the pandemic? And you know, when I spoke to you on Friday, um, just to sort of preview what we're going to be talking about, you said yes, there are some things that have changed. Uh, you talked about bonds, you talked about outperformance, and you also talked about non-U.S. versus U.S. Can you walk me through those three big thematics in terms of what's different now than, say, four months ago or seven months ago?
2: Well, the obvious difference between today and you know seven months ago is seven months ago, the world hadn't come to grips with the fact that this was going to be a pandemic. Uh, and so you know, bond yields were higher, stock markets had yet to go on this wild ride. Um, and then a month later, uh, we were in this very scary part of the ride, and, and a lot of asset prices had fallen very considerably. And now we've seen a strong rally. That strong rally has has shown very strong outperformance of growth stocks versus value, uh, along with uh, kind of lack of relaxation in the bond markets, where at the at the depths of the fear, you know, bond yields hit historic lows. But they really haven't moved a lot since then. Um, and what that is saying is uh, that what's gone on, say, with bonds is less about an acute pandemic, oh, my God, is the world falling apart, and more the world, the investors saying, you know, we believe this is going to be a lasting change in central bank policy. Um, And so I do think bonds are different because the yields are lower. I think we came in to uh, 2020 with the US having outperformed the rest of the world by kind of historic amounts over the last decade, growth stocks having outperformed value stocks by historic amounts. And then this year we've seen even more. Um, So it's not so much, oh, the world changed because of the pandemic. It is the world got even more extreme Uh, because of the pandemic. Um, And we were talking uh, last fall about what struck us as a really good opportunity for value stocks. And the question was, is it good enough that we really want to be pounding the table the way we were in 2000? And we're saying, well, it's just not quite as extreme as it was in 2000. Now, maybe it never gets that extreme again, but we know it can. And I would say the difference between back then, a year ago, and today is, in a lot of ways, it is as extreme as it was in 2000. Uh, So we do think the value growth uh, split has gotten to kind of extraordinary and, frankly, somewhat silly levels. Um, And the other thing that's been really interesting in, say, the past four or five months is We've seen a lot of behavior by investors that we had not seen in a long time. And this is something that, that Jeremy Grantham, who's still active in our firm, had talked about. The US market has been pretty expensive for a while. Um, and it's tempting when the market is trading very expensive relative to its history to say, ah, it must be a bubble. Uh, and Jeremy's contention was, well, it's an expensive market, but I'm not sure it's a bubble, because in a bubble, you see stupid, speculative things happening. You see companies trading at valuations that are utterly insane. And you see things that, in retrospect, everybody will say, well, how could people have been so stupid as to do that? Right. Um, you know, And if you look at the performance of the fangs, right, the the fangs have really outperformed, but you don't look at the performance of Amazon over the past five years and say, how could people have been so stupid? Amazon is truly a dominant company making a lot of money. Whether it's cheap or expensive is a different matter, but it wasn't obviously stupid. Um, Nikola was stupid, Tesla is stupid. Hertz was stupid. There's some stupid speculative stuff going on that really is different than anything we have seen really since uh,
1: the bubble in 2000. Yeah, very interesting commentary. I mean, are yeah, so many uh, ways that we can go with that. Uh, we're going to get to the bonds later, and then the U.S. versus non-U.S. later as well. But let's uh, let's get get to all of that. Um, let me see. How am I thinking about this? Because I, I think I was telling this to you before. Uh, when you talk about the Fang stocks, you talk about Amazon. I, I was thinking, you know, I was on Twitter. I was looking at the stocks, and I saw that Apple had something like a two trillion, maybe two point three trillion dollar market cap. And I thought to myself, okay, Apple is as big a company as you can get market cap wise. They've also had almost no growth uh, recently. And I'm going to pay 45 times earnings for that. I understand that they're dominant, but in what world is that rational? And I went back to 2000 and the equivalent Microsoft, uh, being a dominant competitor to the point where they were under antitrust investigation, got up to 75 times uh, their price earnings ratio at some point in time. What's going on with regard to the FANGs, Uh, companies that are so big? Yet, sport these ridiculously high multiples of price earnings?
2: It is a tricky question because, in principle, you could say Amazon's PE makes sense because people are prepared to buy Amazon expecting that you'd get a return of about, let's say, 3% plus inflation right? They're trading at 45 times earnings. If we assume there's going to be some growth over time, yeah, maybe that's kind of a 25 to 3% real return at constant valuations. Now, that's a lot lower than historic returns to stocks. Historically, people have thought about stocks as returning inflation plus maybe five or six. Um, but given where bond yields are, And the fact that bonds, which used to deliver, let's say, inflation plus two or three, are now delivering inflation less one or one and a half, um, maybe you could say, okay, two and a half percent, three percent real for Apple, that's not crazy, and that's different from Microsoft in 2000 because Microsoft in 2000, well, 75 times earnings, you're talking about about a one and a half percent real return, and. uh, you know the the tips at the time were yielding close to 4 so that just made no sense so apple could make sense what concerns me is i don't think any of the people buying apple are really using that logic what they are saying i think is apple is a truly dominant firm the most powerful brand in the world and i think it's going to continue to grow and i think it's going to grow into that valuation and i think i'm going to get five or six percent real Um, or more or more. And that's where I think there may well be a problem. Um, And some of that comes down to the fact that, as you say, Apple already has a a market cap of about two trillion dollars. So Apple's growth from here really is consequential. It's consequential for the economy. it's consequential for other companies. We're seeing uh, you know, the, uh, the legal fight right now between them and Epic over Fortnite. Um, and I think as these big dominant companies, if they were to become even more big and dominant, they'd get a real big target on their back from a regulation standpoint. Uh, and I think it's, it's not that Apple is doomed um, or that its profits are guaranteed to plummet from here. It's more that you want to be careful about assuming a lot of growth from a company where that growth would be strongly demonstrating that they're a monopolist. So I think we see a bubble today in US growth stocks. I'm not sure that the fangs are a bubble. They're expensive stocks, and expensive stocks are capable of going down. But I can paint a world where what they're doing makes some sense. There are other companies where I there is no world I can paint uh, where this is a rational
1: way to be valuing the company. Well, uh, let's let's get into that because um, I think it gets us to um, ex post versus ex ante explanations for behavior. Because the way that I'm looking at what you just said, you know, ex post, you can make the claim that uh, it makes sense logically to get the three percent, et cetera. But when you look at investor behavior, ex ante, really, that's not why they're investing in Apple right now. Uh, thinking that they're gonna get the extra two to three percent. Really, they're thinking, I'm gonna get five to six percent real plus more. which, uh, you know, given Apple's dominance might be ex- you know explainable. But let's move into sort of the more speculative realm. Uh, not entirely speculative, but somewhat speculative. Uh, Tesla, because you mentioned Tesla specifically. And I look at Tesla uh, interestingly, uh, similar to say Amazon, and uh, you know, 20 years ago, that is, is that this is a company that people are saying, uh, wait a minute, uh, the multiple is very large, and people are discounting us, but uh, we're going to grow a lot over time. And in Amazon's case, that happened; uh, they came to dominate not just their niche, but a much larger uh, area. And people are saying the same thing about Tesla today. So the argument, therefore, is Tesla is worth it as a result. Their valuation is not a sign of a bubble. What, what do you say to that? So
2: I'd say there's, there's a, a few different things that, that one needs to pull apart. Um, one of them is there, there is a new economic reality, as it were. Um, And and one of the knocks people have have had on Amazon for a number of years is, wow, look at that P.E., they don't really make much of any money. Why should they be worth a trillion dollars if they don't really make money? Amazon really does make money and a lot of money. And one of the ways we know that is because Amazon has grown hugely without having to raise external capital. I think they did a capital raise in, like, 1998. And I'm not sure they've done anything material since then. Um, <clears throat> and that must mean their internal cash flow generation was enough to turn this company from you know, a few thousand employees 20-odd years ago to hundreds of thousands you know, with planes and uh, <clears throat> a distribution system kind of second to none. Um, So one thing I'd say about Amazon is if you look carefully and disentangle, well, what are they really doing with their money? Should we be capitalizing that versus expensing it? Amazon has been a consistently profitable firm over time, and Tesla has not. In fact, over the last 12 months, when Tesla has been ostensibly profitable, more than 100 percent of those profits have come from the sale of emissions permits. Uh, so it's not directly from selling their cars, it's from money they're getting paid by other uh, other auto companies. But one of the difficulties uh, with a company like Tesla is at the end of the day, they are a manufacturer. They build cars. The economies of scale of manufacturing, they they exist, but they're not anywhere near as magical as the economies of scale of some of these kind of software driven IT firms where you get this kind of massive advantage, right? One of the reasons why Amazon grew was because of the information they could get from the people who visit their site and they can understand what it is that people are doing. And frankly, they take advantage of a variety of things. It's not clear you should be allowed to both sell stuff on your own and have a dominant. Uh, kind of marketplace, but but let's let's not go there. The thing is, Tesla's valuation either assumes they are going to dominate some businesses that don't really exist yet, which I guess is possible, or that Tesla is going to dominate the auto industry in a way that no company ever has before. And at a profit level, nobody ever has before, right? They're not just trading at a high valuation for somebody who sells 500,000 cars a year. They are trading at a valuation, which is a multiple of any other auto company in the world. Um, uh, And it's really quite hard to make the math work out of selling cars. Now, if you are prepared to believe everything that Elon Musk says, It's okay because they're not actually going to sell cars. They're going to be selling, uh, you know, mobility as a service, and they are going to crack that despite the fact that lots of other people have spent a lot more money on it. It's one of those issues where you have to believe both they will be able to do a whole bunch of hard things that they have not yet shown that they can do, but also other people who are attempting to do it will all fail simultaneously. Um, It's... It's a hard ask. Uh, And it's the kind of thing where they're priced today for an assumption of success. And one of the things about Amazon, right, if Amazon was trading at a trillion dollar market cap 10 years ago, because people said, you know what, I think 10 years from now, they will have done all of that stuff, that would have been crazy. it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been crazy because they were wrong and they haven't done what they've done in the past 10 years. It's just that, man, if they pull all that off, the stock price should be stable. And what I'd say about Tesla is everything they could possibly pull off in the last 10 years, they're already priced for. So that means even if they get that, you're not going to get any return and any disappointment relative to that, and you're going to lose a bunch of money. But what it has is a compelling narrative, strong momentum, um, a really interesting and newsworthy CEO, and I will freely admit a pretty good product. I am a happy Tesla owner. It's not that I think they are a fraud. Um, I mean, Elon Musk has said things over the years that have turned out not to be true. But one of the things about securities... Uh, fraud lawsuits is they don't tend to happen until people have lost money from them, and since nobody's lost money in Tesla, there hasn't been any reason uh, to to have those lawsuits. Despite the fact that he said some things that, wow, I don't I don't know how with a straight face you could say,
1: oh yes, I believed
2: this when I said it.
1: Right. You know, uh, um, when you said all of that just now, I was thinking to myself, I, I was thinking about bonds. Uh, I, you know, I used to be a bond guy back in the day. And you you were talking about bonds being the facilitator of this from a discount uh, perspective when we talked a little bit earlier, and w- the way I was thinking about it was optionality uh, because of the Amazon story that you were telling. Ten years ago, you could have said Amazon was a trillion dollar company that would have been crazy, uh, but it's not uh, today. Whereas Tesla, what it is today, uh, it's crazy. Uh, to think that they could do this, even when they say that there are all these ancillary markets that we can go into where there are economies of scale and we have operating leverage and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Essentially, what people are doing because uh, uh, they're able to, they're thinking this way, is they're buying a a, a um, out of the money option, you know, long dated that has huge um, volatility, implied volatility. And we're at a, a stage now where doing that makes a lot of sense to people. And the question for me is, is why would they do that? And a lot of it has to do with, uh, if somehow I get back to the bond market and the fact that uh, bond yields are as low as they are. Um, I, I'm, uh, this isn't a direct correct, uh, connection here, but this is just how I'm thinking about, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to put my arms around it. And... Uh, it just sends me back to what you wrote uh, in your Q2 GMO piece about bonds. Um, You were writing about bonds that traditionally, they've given you two different things, uh, income, because you got a coupon payment. And they also gave you a hedge when bad things happen. Maybe maybe this is why I'm thinking of it this way, because obviously, the time that, you know, when, when interest rates go up, That optionality suddenly uh, evaporates, uh, meaning that what was a great option, uh, just from a purely uh, mathematical perspective, uh, that option suddenly becomes uh, much less worth uh, because the interest rate has made it worth less. So maybe you can talk to me about uh, these two concepts. uh, These two concepts of the the fact that we aren't getting any uh, coupon, and at the same time, we also are not getting any hedge.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
2: So first I want to I want to speak to something uh, you you were talking about with a company like Tesla and you're absolutely right what Tesla stock is is an out of the money option and out of the money options you know their valuation depends on a couple of things one of them is interest rates but crucially the most important one is volatility the implied volatility and what I am saying about Tesla is, man, they are assuming an absolute ton of volatility. Um, And one of the things about volatility is it doesn't actually tend to scale the way the math suggests it should. Um, Multi-year volatility, as you're thinking about kind of 10-year volatility, the problem is you get into problems that, okay, they can grow this way for a year, they can grow this way for a year, they can grow this way for five years. By 10 years, oh my God, I have just assumed that Tesla has a 110% market share of the auto industry. And well, that didn't work. So that upside volatility has some limit to it. Um, the discount rate matters. I'd say the discount rate arguably matters more for a company like Apple which you're not really valuing as an out-of-the-money option. You're thinking of it in terms of its cash flows, and it does pay a dividend, and it does buy back stock. Um, and if you are confident those cash flows are going to exist, again, as, as we were talking earlier, you know, maybe 2.5% real from those cash flows isn't crazy um, because of what's happened to bonds. Um, So I think actually you can make more sense out of the valuation of the big high quality companies based on the discount rate argument. The problem with so many of these secular growth narrative names is the implied volatilities really don't make sense anymore. Um, But going back to bonds, there is something fascinating uh, about the difference between this event, the pandemic, and the financial crisis a decade ago. Well, more than a decade ago now. You know, they brought cash rates down to zero. They did a lot of uh, kind of extraordinary monetary easing beyond that. Um, but if you looked at what the market was assuming, it was saying, yeah, this is temporary and we're going to go back to normal. So, You know, the 10-year bond rate didn't fall that much, and and kind of the forward expected yields didn't fall that much. This time, it's not just that they brought cash rates down to zero, but the market is saying, wow, I now believe cash rates are going to be zero, not just out to 2023, as the Fed said, but effectively out 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And so we've seen an extraordinary rally in bonds uh, to the point where- They really no longer give any meaningful amount of income, right? The 10-year Treasury is yielding, I don't know, 65 basis points, Um, really very little. And that has two implications, as as you were saying earlier. One is, man, you're not going to get a useful amount of income from government bonds. That's a problem because that was one of the key things they did for your portfolio. But the other slightly more subtle issue is If it's the case that the Federal Reserve is really unlikely to bring rates below zero uh, and they've said they have no interest in bringing rates below zero, there are some uh, features of the way the financial system works in the U.S. that would actually make it really difficult to bring things materially below zero. If zero is the lower bound, the other problem for bonds today is they're not going to be able to provide the hedge that they used to. And so the hedge that I'm talking about is the fact that historically, whenever something really bad happened, bond yields fell, right? Whether that was, you know, the the first Gulf War or the uh, the financial crisis or the TMT bubble, or frankly, the pandemic, bond yields have always fallen. Um, But if we've hit the end of that, then it's an issue. because those falling bond yields have always led to this really nice capital gain in the tough times. And so if you were holding something that looked like a 60-40 portfolio, um, those 40 points of bonds actually acted, caused you to act as if you didn't have 60% in stocks, maybe you had 50% in stocks. Uh, So that really reduced your risk considerably. And it gave you income. Now it doesn't really give you income and it's not going to be able to reduce the risk in the portfolio in the same way. And we've already seen that. You know, in the US, the Treasury bonds did a wonderful job protecting you in February and March um, because there was space for cash yields to fall. In Europe and in Japan, where cash yields were already zero or negative, bonds on average, government bonds on average lost money. So we've already seen that from a U.S. perspective, great, bombs did their job. From the standpoint of the people who already got to where we are now, they've learned, oh, damn, bombs don't do that anymore. And that's that's a real shame because the 60-40 portfolio was a wonderful solution. It was such a nice solution that, frankly, you didn't even have to be all that specific about what problem you were trying to solve, you know if you're if you know if if your aunt shows up and says, "Okay, what should I do with my money?" You could say sixty 40 you didn't have to ask her any other questions. 60 forty was a good enough solution. It's no longer a good enough solution.
1: Um, and that's going to make life more difficult for investors. Uh, that's a great answer because and it opens up a whole can of worms in terms of asset allocation, in terms of diversification outside of government bonds, et cetera. So uh, let's go down that uh, that road with regard to, so what do you do then uh, to get away from a 60-40 portfolio? L- let me actually, uh, as we walk down that road, uh, put the signpost from your seven-year asset class forecast to give us a sense of how the, this changes and what people should be thinking about. First of all, I, I know that you guys release a seven-year um, asset class forecast. Um, and it just came out just recently uh, last week, on on your website. But the question is is uh, why seven years, uh, and what are those forecasts telling us? So we we put out those forecasts for
2: a long time. I remember we we first started publishing them back in 1995. And the basic idea behind the forecast is, hey, let's imagine that at some point in the future. Everything is valued at a historically normal valuation level. So wherever we are now, you know, we'd say, okay, seven years from now, assume we're normal. What is the embedded return to this asset if we've got to get back to normal? And it's been one of the straightforward ways we've communicated with our clients for a long time. Um, and it's a nice way of helping our clients understand what we think is cheap and expensive without giving them this false sense that, and we know whether the stock market's gonna go up or down next month or next quarter or next year. So to some degree, the seven year forecast is, part of the important thing here is that saying seven years, this is not a near term forecast. Uh, And expensive markets have a tendency to wend their way down over time, but that does not mean they can't go up before they they go down. Um, So the forecast we publish, are saying, let's assume everything is priced at historically normal level seven years from now, what's the return we're gonna get on the way? Um, and today, uh, in a sense, that's about as ugly as it's ever been uh, mm. because you know US stocks are expensive, they've been expensive for a while, but until the last few days, they were trading at all-time highs. Um, but it, even though we have seen expensive stocks before, You know, in 2000, the stock market was expensive, but bonds were cheap and small caps were cheap and emerging markets were cheap. So there were places to hide. Uh, In the financial crisis of 2008, eh, everything risky was kind of expensive. But again, you could hide in cash. You could hide in tips. Today, there is no place really to hide. There are no low risk, reasonably high return assets out there. Um, And when it comes to US large cap stocks, we'd say, well, that's a high risk, lousy return asset. Um, There are some high risk, pretty good return assets. Uh, We think in particular, emerging market stocks, which just haven't done that well the past five or six years, are a lot cheaper than stocks in the US. Uh, And in particular, value stocks in emerging are trading at the widest spreads we've ever seen. Um and as a result, we think they have a right to deliver kind of the six, seven, eight percent type returns, maybe even a little bit more, that people are used to from equities. Um so we do think there are some, some places you can look to invest where you're gonna get the kinds of returns we've gotten in. In stocks in the long run, emerging markets value, international small caps. Um, but in kind of high quality bonds, you're going to get nothing. In cash, you're going to get nothing. We think in US large caps, I'm not sure you're going to get any better than nothing. Certainly, if valuations come back down to historically normal levels, man, you're not going to get any return there. Um, so the problem for the traditional portfolio is really acute and probably the worst that we've seen, at least in the you know 30 years or so that we've been doing asset allocation. The good news is there are some places that are interesting. Um, it's just not the natural places that investors think of
1: to stick their money. Right. Hey, and you, I want to drill down on this uh, first and foremost, going back to uh, stocks have been expensive for a long time, because I thought that was an interesting uh, look. Let's look at this um, over the, the course of this last cycle, as well as at March and then again May and then today. And I, I use those dates on purpose because basically you're saying that stocks have been over this cycle expensive uh, pretty much, you know. From the the, the depths of the the financial crisis, they came back, and then, you know, they're expensive uh, at the precipice of the the pandemic. At the pandemic, though, uh, GMO was saying after a 35% drawdown, okay, you can reallocate. We're talking about reallocation. However, already, by the time that we reached May, I saw you were speaking to Barron's. You were saying, you know, (laughs) we- uh, we said you can reallocate in in March. now um, we're already backing away from that. And then here we are, you and I, uh, four months later. So walk me through uh, this whole period with the concept of mean reversion uh, uh, in your mind, both from a earnings perspective and also from a price earnings multiple perspective. So this has been a,
2: a really interesting you know, 10 or 12 years. The stock market really did get cheap in the financial crisis. Uh, and so it deserved a pretty big rally coming off of that. Um, we have thought that U.S. large cap stocks have been pretty expensive for a while. Um, we were arguably too soon to make that call. Because if you go back, say, five years, the PE of the market was high ish. Uh, but what was really striking was, man, profit margins were really good relative to history. And we did an analysis. We said, okay, what's happened when profit margins have been this good in history? And what we saw was, yeah, every time they've been this good, it's been because we're kind of at the peak of an economic cycle and profit margins have come back down. Um, and what I missed was that the profit margins this cycle were actually being driven by something else. It wasn't because we had really high capacity utilization. Uh, We didn't. And in fact, if you looked across the economy, profit margins weren't that high for the average company. What was happening was there was this huge gap that had opened up between the very biggest companies and everybody else. And the analysis that I was doing was saying, man, if everybody is really profitable, that's going to come back down. But everybody wasn't really profitable. It was, you know, the proto-fangs that were really profitable. And what was driving them to be really profitable was some things that, uh, you know, the academics are now talking about, which is... Uh, increasing industry concentration, increasing monopoly power, decreasing kind of regulation of a variety of ways that uh, that really benefited um, some of the some of the big dominant companies, and quite lax, uh, you know, antitrust enforcement that allowed uh, the consolidation of industries in a way that it couldn't have happened before. And what that means is those profits weren't really driven by it being awesome times. It was it is awesome times to be an oligopolist. It is awesome times to be a monopolist. (laughs) And it's not that those companies are uh, safe from anything bad happening, but the assumption we were making, which was, look, if I look forward seven years, we should assume everything's normal. Coming back from this oligopoly world probably is going to take longer than seven years. So I would say we were a few years too early to say that the US stock market was really overvalued, um, because at the time, it wasn't really about the PEs, it was about the earnings. More recently, the BEs have come up too. um, And that's more of an issue, because high PEs really require strong growth for them to make sense. And if we know we're in a world where GDP growth has slowed and productivity growth has slowed, and unfortunately, that's all true, aggregate earnings growth is going to slow. So a high P.E. is a real problem um, because it requires not just that things continue to look the way they do, but things have to continue to look better and better and better. What about the discount rate? So what you can make sense of that with is investors saying, yeah, but that's OK, because I'm prepared to put up with a lower return. And so about four years ago or so, we started showing our clients two versions of the forecasts. Um, we called them at the time purgatory forecasts, which are kind of the standard ones, the, the one that you saw on the, on the website uh, the other day and what we referred to as hell forecasts. We stopped referring to them as hell forecasts, not so much because we were offending people, we may have offended people, and for that I apologize, uh, but we were doing the more unforgivable thing of confusing them because our hell forecasts were better than the purgatory forecast. people like, well, that doesn't make sense because hell is worse than purgatory. The idea behind the hell forecast was, let's assume discount rates have permanently fallen. Our forecasts say, hey, what if PEs go back to 16, because that was the historically normal PE for the market? What the health forecast would would say is, well, 16 is what you need if you want to get 5.5% to 6% real from stocks. Um, But if you're prepared to put up with 4.5% real from stocks, then you can trade at 21 times earnings. And so we came up with this other scenario, let's assume the fall in the discount rates is permanent. Um, And the Forecasts for all assets are better because the um, the kind of sustainable valuation is higher. But even there, you started having problems, kind of 2018, 2019, uh, and by you know the end of 2019, we were saying, "Wow, this is a really overvalued stock market." But um, there were kind of two things in our minds at the time that caused us from being more extremely bearish than we were. One was the fact that we really hadn't seen that kind of stupid behavior we saw in the internet bubble. And the other is the conditions on the ground were consistent with past times where the market has been expensive we did this analysis back in the late 1990s, Jeremy and I. Uh, it was you know, actually uh, pretty purely a data mining exercise. We were just looking for what are the economic conditions that explain the valuation in the market. And a lot of people were saying, oh, the market is high because growth has been really good. We looked historically, yeah, growth didn't matter. Um, high growth, low growth, the market didn't seem to much care from a, a PE perspective. Uh, and people were looking, well, what about the level of real bond yields? The level of real bond yields historically never mattered. What mattered was three things the stability of GDP. So, what people liked was not so much fast growth, but a world that seemed to be predictable and had few surprises. The stability of prices, what the world, what the market really liked was low positive inflation. It hates deflation, but it hates inflation too, high inflation too. And the other thing it likes is very high current profitability. And what you could say about the world at the end of 2019 is, wow, the world looked very good through those lenses. GDP volatility was the lowest on on record. Inflation volatility was the lowest on record. And profitability, at least for US mega cap stocks, was about as good as it had ever been. So we had an expensive market, but we had the conditions which historically would have said, yeah, it's going to be an expensive market. What started getting us very nervous back in May was, well, once again, the market having made a very nice rally from March was looking expensive again. But those three factors were no longer so positive. GDP volatility, well, we'd just seen the worst GDP print in the history of GDP. Inflation volatility, we had just seen deflation. The chances of seeing inflation had just gone up. And corporate profitability had just taken a nosedive. So the valuations weren't so different. In fact, they were lower than they were at the beginning of the year. But the conditions that made those valuations make sense were completely absent. So we said, man, I'm not sure that the market's going down from here, but it does seem like a kind of scary risk reward trade-off. Um, and then the market proceeded to go up, although I'm still not quite sure. Um, if you had told me what was going to economically happen between May and now, I certainly would have ca- wouldn't have called, oh yeah. And given that, The stock market should have been up another twenty-five points.
1: (laughs) Right, yeah. I don't. I I don't. I think few people would have predicted that. But that that answer actually was really good for me in terms of framing it from the perspective of what we're talking about today. You know, this content campaign about has everything changed? I mean, something has changed from an asset allocation perspective in terms of on a fundamental basis. The drivers of um, you know, higher um, earnings, higher multiples, all of them have dissipated over uh, th- this pandemic period. And to the degree that we're four months into uh, your change uh, there, I don't see any difference now today uh, in terms of the things driving th- those factors than there were in, in May.
2: Yeah, I, I'd say, I mean, we've learned a couple of things since May. One of them is, I think the the probability of a true global depression mm-hmm. is lower than I would have called in May. It was never my base case, but it seemed more of a possibility. Uh, what we have seen is that the massive fiscal stimulus um, has made it so that even though economic activity cratered, um, there wasn't the same kind of level of distress that would normally be associated with that cratering. And that's clearer today than it was. Um, But at the same time, what the market, I mean, with the best will in the world, I can only think that the market is saying, hey, yeah, okay, it kind of stinks for a little while now. We don't have the vaccine yet, but we're going to have the vaccine. We're all going to get back to normal and it'll just be fine. It'll be as if this never happened. Um, And that is not as extreme a statement as is being made by, let's say, Tesla shareholders. (laughs) Um, But it's still a pretty bullish take on the world today. Because in addition to the fact that you know, that vaccine may not fix everything. It is not the case that the only thing wrong with the world today is the pandemic. Um, We do have kind of from a uh, global tensions perspective, the U.S. and China, the two dominant economies in the world really seem to be at each other's throats in, in a way that can be very damaging. Uh, In general, the attitude of one country to another is not very good. And in a world that has hugely benefited from globalization, you know, the retreat from globalization that is embodied not just in the U.S.-China trade war, but let's say, you know, the slightly odd things going on now by the British government in terms of Brexit and their unwillingness to negotiate with the Europeans, governments seem to be doing things that are likely to make economic conditions worse. Uh, And that, again, ignores the other issue that the US may indeed be becoming ungovernable because you've got two sides who fundamentally believe the other group is so evil, they should never be allowed to have any, any control over uh, over the country. And if they win, it is prima facie evidence that the whole thing was uh, a fraud or unfair. Um, there's plenty of stuff to be nervous about. Uh, and in general, when investors are nervous, they usually use a higher discount rate. They say, you know what, I'm not going to be as certain as I, as I have been on what those cash flows are gonna be five years from now, 10 years from now. Um, And today, man, the way you can make sense of the market is by saying, yep, they're putting that really low discount rate on those future cash flows, and they're really assuming those future cash flows are gonna be there. Uh, And from my perspective, that's still kind of my base case, but I'm crossing my fingers and hoping and not so sure I wanna put Everything on an assumption that those cash flows are still going to be there, um, and I certainly don't want to put the lowest discount rate in history on those uncertain cash
1: flows. Right. I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense. And and you know as you said that uh, uh, what was going through my mind was that that takes us through a lot of the first two parts uh, of what's changed that you told me on Friday in terms of bonds. And also, in terms of, I would say, um, growth versus value and the, the the outperformance there. The one thing that we haven't hit on as much is the US versus the non-US. And the uh, the way that I would posit it to start the conversation is I had a, a, a conversation with an investor. Uh, he uh, is at a um, you know, uh, a private investment company. Uh, in Germany, Philip Fondran, uh, he was telling me that you know, look, when you reweight uh, the uh, European indices in the exact same way that you weight the U.S. in terms of the IT, the technology weighting, magically the the weight of uh, you know the 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 PE ratios, the differential goes away. So uh, when you think about that in terms of you know, is the US expensive? Should I reweight? Should I reallocate away from the US, US large cap in particular, US large cap growth? The answer would be no. What do you think about the concept of reweighting the indices for IT and what it tells you about valuations? Yeah,
2: I, I think that is a useful exercise to do, but it's a trickier one than it seems to be. Uh, And in this particular case, we've done that reweighting, and it turns out you can either make Europe look like it's trading at similar valuations to the US, or you can make the US look like it's trading at a huge premium to Europe. And the difference is, which sector weights do you use? So in the US, IT, depending on what you want to think about uh, companies like Google and Facebook, which are officially not IT companies, IT is somewhere between 30 and 40% of the S&P 500. It's a much smaller percentage of the European stock market. And so if you took the European IT stocks and you said, all right, let's reweight them so that they're 35% of the total um, index, suddenly the index gets a lot more expensive because IT is just about the only sector in which the European firms are trading at a premium to the U.S. firms. So there aren't that many IT firms in Europe, certainly on on a relative basis. Um, And whether it's because of scarcity premium or the fact that they are younger in their history, they tend to trade at pretty high PE. So let's say US IT is trading at 35 times earnings. Uh, European IT is trading at 50 times earnings. So if you took Europe and you say, well, I'm going to make 35% of the weight stuff trading 50 times earnings, man, that starts to look expensive. But if you look at every other industry, what you're going to find is on average, the European ones look cheaper than the US ones. So You know, the European autos, the European oil companies, the European utilities, the European banks, they tend to look like they're trading at a discount uh, to the U.S. ones. So if you took the U.S. and you gave it the European weights, it's trading at about a 25 or 30 percent premium P.E. Um, So it's an interesting way of looking at things. But you got to be careful about what you're doing. My personal preference is... Rather than doing e- either of those things, start out saying, what valuation relative to the global sector do European you know, auto companies trade at or US utilities trade at? And say, before I make a statement about whether it is good to have a high IT weight or bad to have an I- a high IT weight, on average, are the companies cheaper or more expensive for being in Europe or Japan or the UK or the US? And when you do that, the US is trading at a very significant premium to all the others.
1: Right. You, you know, I want to end this conversation with, uh, speaking of that, uh, with uh, the ultimate value sector and talking about that. And that is uh, uh, financial services, because that was the first thing that came to mind when you said that. There was an article uh, in the, I think it was in the Financial Times today, that was talking about um, Bankia, a Spanish bank merging with another Spanish bank. Uh, They were talking about Deutsche Bank wanting to merge with Commerzbank, a bunch of different mergers. And the the premise basically was that uh, Europe was in trouble from their financial services sector uh, because it's a mess, versus in the United States. Where it's less messy. And the overall gist was that Europe's trading at a discount to the US in that particular segment because it deserves a discount relative to the US banks. And so then the question is is that what is reflective of the relative positions in the markets? Um, that's the first question that I'll, that I'll put to you. And the second question is how can we be sure? that we are on solid ground when the ultimate value sector, financial services, which is at the core of our credit-based economy, is is trading at such a discount to growth? How can we be sure that the future is so bright that we're, we're really going to have that magical um, uh, outcome that you were talking about in the section just before? Banks
2: are- a real pain in the neck. Um, When we try to do valuations for stock markets, what we tend to do is throw the banks out beforehand and look at the valuations of the market x the banks. And we don't do that because we think banks are inherently a bad investment, but because banks operate differently from other companies, right? They are central to, uh, you know, credit across the economy. But um, relative to just about any other company out there, they are hugely levered. Um, And one of the things you'll find is a company trading at a big discount to price to book, on price to book, generally, historically, has been a pretty good buy. The one group where that is Absolutely not the case is banks. And the big reason for that is if you're a bank, and you're trading at a big discount to book value, and you need to recapitalize. So you have some losses, and you've know you, you you've run afoul of your um, regulatory requirements on, on, uh, on capital. It can be impossible. You can wind up having to, frankly, get bailed out by the state and that tends to be so profoundly dilutive that shareholders get wiped out. And you just don't see that in other industries because they don't have the extremes of leverage. Um, So banks are this weird group where the fact that they're trading really cheap might not be a good sign. That said, banks today in a lot of places, including the US, Are trading cheaper than they were in the financial crisis. And that's interesting because financial is the key term in financial crisis. That was a crisis (laughs) that was about bad debts. That was a crisis that was about the banks. And this one isn't. Um, And so while I'm not sure exactly how well European banks are going to do, or Japanese banks are going to do, or frankly, US banks are going to do. The world is pricing them as if bad stuff's going to happen, worse stuff than happened in the financial crisis. Uh, And in general, I think you want to buy when people are that pessimistic. It's not a guarantee that things are going to go well. And I certainly wouldn't say to anybody, you know what you want to do? You want to take all of your money and put it in the bank, in banks. Putting it in the bank may be okay if there's uh, uh, deposit insurance, but they make sense. They're risky today, but you are getting paid nicely for taking that risk. Um, And again, it's It's not just that Europe looks cheap because European banks look cheap relative to US banks and the whole market is just banks. Frankly, because banks have done so poorly, they are a smaller piece of every market than they used to be. It's the same thing with kind of resource stocks, right? They used to be this huge piece of, say, emerging. Well, they're not anymore. So I think, in general, you know, you want to be greedy when other people are fearful, and fearful when other people are greedy. Um, I think people are fearful with regard to the banks. Buy some. I'd buy a diversified uh, pool of them. I'd probably want to buy relatively high-quality ones that are that do seem to have good underlying profitability. But there's something to be said. You know, the industry of banking isn't going to disappear, and somebody's going to make decent money out of it.
1: I think that's a great way to end the conversation. Uh, I I would consider that a positive note, uh, Ben, (laughs) uh, to end the conversation there. I I appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. I I had a ton of stuff uh, to talk to you about about, with uh, Matt Matt Cadner in terms of different bonds, uh, but maybe we can save that uh, for another conversation later on. Sure thing. Love to. Thanks, Ben. All right. Thanks for having me.